0: Welcome to episode 167.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Today we'll be discussing 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12.
0: You can find links to all of my resources at philsbaker.com. And if you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on our Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith.
1: You can check out my catalog of podcasts on my show, The Faithful Podcast with Stephanie Baker.
0: Also, I've got a new book, The Final Abominable Temple, which you can purchase in audio, digital, hardback, and paperback formats on Amazon. And if you've read it, please consider leaving a review there as well.
1: And finally, we're blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can find links to all of our content there at omegafrequency.com.
0: All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode
2: 167.
0: All right, Steph, into chapter two of 1 Thessalonians. Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So where we left off last time, the end of chapter one, Paul was talking about how the Thessalonian believers turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and how they're waiting for their savior, their rescuer from heaven, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we talked about how Paul has been uh, through the book of Acts, he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he writes in Philippians chapter three, that our citizenship is in heaven from whom we wait a savior, Jesus Christ, who will transform our bodies to look like his bodies when he returns. So Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ. So we're like ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. So we're showing people what the kingdom of heaven is like. We're showing them, we're telling them about the king, how they can become citizens of the kingdom as well. And in chapter 2, we are going to see Paul showing how an ambassador from heaven should live. All right. All right. So Steph, do you want to read for us? Sure. First Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through twelve.
1: For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have uh, we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we were while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory.
0: All right. So Paul begins this chapter by reminding the Thessalonians about his struggle with Silas and Timothy and Luke in Philippi. And he talks about how they were shamefully treated And this word "hubriso" means like deliberately and spitefully injured. And you remember how Paul and Silas, they cast a demon out of a a girl who was a slave that made her pimps basically very angry. They got the city officials together and the city officials had Paul beaten and Silas beaten and then like with rods and then thrown into the stocks, right? Now this was illegal to be done to both Paul and Silas because they were Roman citizens. They had their diptych, which is basically their citizenship card with them. Uh, It was a document that all Roman citizens would carry around is super prized possession, you know? And they did not flash that, they didn't show it. Now, why were they allowed to be shamefully beaten? because they are, sorry, why did they, why did they get shamefully beaten? It's because they allowed it. Why would they allow it? Probably they're listening to the Holy Spirit direct them to not use the rights that they had for their own benefit, but instead to put aside their rights for the benefit of someone else, which ended up being that jailer. So it was pretty neat how Paul and Silas were living not like citizens of Rome, but citizens of a greater kingdom whose king was giving them an order to be patient. Yeah. To wait. What are your thoughts?
1: Oh, I mean, it's just, I mean, that's part of that could be as an encouragement for those that live places where that's not an option to just flash a citizenship. Hard and get out of consequence. You know that's going to be, you know, the early Christians what they're going to endure. So they basically we're also showing like we're in this with you. Like we're not, we're going to a a dangerous place, and we're gonna we're not gonna let our special treatment um, keep us from the consequences that you guys would endure.
0: Absolutely. And then Paul says that after being so mistreated, they had boldness in our God. We had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And we already talked about the opposition that they faced in Thessalonica, but I wanted to highlight this. We had much boldness to speak the gospel to you. If you go through Acts, when you see people filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the main things that you are going to see accompany of that is not necessarily like signs and wonders or miracles, but rather this boldness from the Holy Spirit to declare the truth from God. Boldness to speak God's truth. Now, uh, that usually, as I said, comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. When Paul talks about um, being filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter five, it means to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is... God in spirit form through his believers that's trying to reconcile the world to himself. And so the Holy Spirit is pushing us forward and people need to hear the word in order to be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. You know. So yeah, if we're really praying to be spirit-filled Christians, this is something that is like necessarily going to come along with it. Boldness to speak out, even amidst much opposition. Because, so of course, there's going to be opposition, particularly because you're invading the kingdom of darkness. They don't want to lose ground. That kingdom doesn't want to lose ground. It doesn't want to lose members, all of that, right? Yeah. So let's go on to verse three. It says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity but by, or by way of deceit. Now this word exhortation is parakalesis, which is a form of parakaleo. Maybe you remember Jesus in John 14 saying, you know, if I go away, the helper will come to you. The spirit of truth, that word helper or advocate is parakaleo.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a lawyer, right?
0: Yeah, a defense attorney who is not just gonna act like everything's fine, but is also going to be exhorting a person to live rightly, especially if that person has gotten in trouble. You have to stop that. Like if you listen to me, it's going to work out, but you have to do what I'm saying and you got to stop doing the thing that got you arrested, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Now his exhortation did not come with first error, which is plan a. And that means to depart from what God says is true. Now, I mean, we see people today that maybe they mean well, but they're just speaking error. Paul's saying, I didn't get this wrong. I did not get this wrong. This is right. What I'm speaking to you is the truth. So error could, could be um, a quality of someone who means well, but just is misinformed or is ignorant or just got things wrong. Doesn't necessarily mean bad motives. But the next one, impurity is interesting because it means to be mixed. When Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure of heart for they will see God. That means people's whose heart is unmixed. So it'd be like pure water that doesn't have, uh, I don't know, uh, mixture of Gatorade or something to to change its quality right this is unmixed well impure means to be mixed and probably that would be mixed with something worldly if you think of how things become impure you in uh, for for a Jew uh, of Paul's day you have, a person who is supposed to be walking in a holy manner that encounters something that is worldly or um, impure in some kind of way. So there's a mixture of holy with the common, right? And so maybe Paul is saying here that his teaching is not mixed with worldly wisdom, but it's straight from God. Yeah. Or the next one, he says, but it also didn't come with deceit. Now that word deceit means basically, it's like a fishing term in a sense. It's like a lure. It's bait to try to hook someone. So Paul is not trying to um, trick people into a message. He's not trying to deceive them. He's not coming as you're gonna see with uh, impure motives of greed or anything like that. But rather, Paul says, they are approved by God. That this word dokimazō, which is a very fun word to say, dokimazō. This means to be tried or tested to show that something is acceptable or real, to, refi- to reveal that something is genuine. So God tested Paul and Silas. These are people that have been tested by God to show that they are genuine. And perhaps that's part of what happened in Philippi. God allowing this stuff to give Paul and Silas an opportunity to prove that they are in it for pure reasons in order that as they went along on that second missionary trip they would be able to prove by their stripes, you know, that they are in it for the gospel. Genu- generally, if someone is promoting a lie, they're not going to allow themselves to be beaten with rods when they have their citizenship in their pocket.
1: Well, that's, yeah. I mean, why would you, <laughs> unless it was for good reason, unless it was specifically told to you to do that, why would you, Yeah. Endure unnecessary beatings.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that that shows, if that's true, if my little hypothesis is true that the Philippi incident with Paul and Silas was um, part of Paul and Silas's testing, if that's true, then that shows there's a lot more than one reason for everything. You know, it wasn't just about the girl's deliverance. It wasn't just about the jailer's deliverance or his family's deliverance. It was also about proving Paul because God had more plans for more people and would use that to help draw them in as well. Yeah. So there's not just a reason God has lots of things in mind. If he's going to allow harm to come to one of his kids, it's probably because he wants to bring in more kids to the family. Yeah. All right, so moving to verses 5 and 6, Paul continues to show what they're not about, what they didn't come with. And Paul says, "We did not come with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is not witness. We didn't come to seek glory from you." So this flattering speech means it's coming with a view to advantage or gain. What do you think Paul would mean by that? How would someone coming with flattering speech be, what would they be trying to gain? What would be the advantage that they're trying to gain if they're flattering people?
1: I mean, it could be like trying to obtain position or power or whatever. I mean, usually when you're trying to flatter somebody, you're trying to... um... I mean, I just, I think, yeah, I think of like government leaders, like when you're trying to schmooze people in the business deals and things like that, like you, you use flattering speech, like, oh, you're so great. We're so thankful to know you and be a part of what you're doing. And that's Paul's, well, Like, no, I'm not about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's something basically that Paul warned the Ephesian elders about in Acts 20, when he says like, I never came to you speaking something that would be beneficial to you Um Why is that? Well, he's telling them like, look, there are going to be people that arise after me that are like false prophets. They're like wolves and they're going to draw disciples away after themselves. So they're not trying to advance the kingdom. They're trying to advance their kingdom, in a sense, their name. And, you know, I mean, this is like really dangerous for us who have a bit of a platform wanting more and more. And so you don't wanna rub people the wrong way. You know, We wanna say things to people that help build our platform. And this is like a big temptation. There's, so, there's such a drive in our world to be somebody. And if you're not somebody, if people don't know who you are, then you've wasted your life. And that's just such a lie. It's such a lie but it's per it's pervasive in our culture
1: I think you're you're right on I mean I don't even remember how you phrased it but like what was popping in my head is like if if I lose my platform or if I lose my following or whatever it might be um, but Christ is proclaimed and that message the message of Christ is forwarded is that a disappointment to me or is that exciting like if it's if i'm not the messenger that god is using but god is still moving is that disappointing or is that something i rejoice over and i think that kind of lets you know like where where your heart is like is it about the message or is it about the fact that god's using you as a messenger right
0: yeah that's good now let's go to this uh Apostles of Christ. Look at verse six. Remember who's writing this letter. This is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We did not seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though, Steph, as apostles of Christ, I might have asserted my authority. He's using plural pronouns. We might have asserted our authority. So who are the apostles that Paul is talking about? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul just calls them apostles of Christ. It's not just Paul, it's also Silas, and it's also Timothy. Do you remember in our first uh, message or our first podcast in, uh, when we were breaking down the beginning of uh, chapter one, you're like, well, why doesn't Paul, call himself an apostle. And we're like, he does, it's just later. And here he does with Silas and Timothy included. Yeah, Paul's not shying away from that at all. And he's actually defending his apostleship throughout this chapter. He's showing them how they are true uh, ambassadors for Christ. This is what a true apostle will do. This is how a true apostle will live. Look at what we did. So this is good. Paul's not shying away from defending the work that God has done in him. So verse seven, but we proved to be gentle among you. So it's interesting that that first, um, antonym basically to the previous several descriptives of, um, false apostles, you could say, or maybe uh, not genuine apostles is gentle. It's an interesting term. Maybe this idea of meekness as well. But he uses, instead of like a uh, Mustang that has allowed itself to be tamed, he uses a nursing mother um, for his analogy of gentleness and Contrast a nursing mother to someone who is deceitful to someone who is coming with flattery for someone who has a pretext for greed.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a really beautiful analogy, like the nursing mother kind of thing, because it's, it's an incredibly selfless thing when you know a mother feeds her baby in that way i mean obviously i'm not trying to say make any kind of statements about that but the just the act of the fact that it is it's not a task that you can hand off you're you're engaged and it is um yeah it's giving literally of yourself it it requires you to you know eat differently and sleep differently and all these things so that you can care for your child and it's just you know, an act of selfless love.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They're not coming to receive, they're coming to give. And they're not guarding themselves. Like a nursing mother is making herself very vulnerable. And Paul and Silas and Timothy made themselves very vulnerable to the people. He says, like, having so fond and affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. He says, You were called brethren, this is verse nine, our labor and our hardship, how we worked night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. So there they get to Thessalonica, and you know, in Acts, you just read that they immediately started going into the synagogue. And for three Sabbaths, Paul is witnessing from the scriptures, using the scriptures to demonstrate how the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. You don't get in Acts 17, how they went into Thessalonica. And after that first Sabbath, they immediately got themselves jobs and worked every day. Obviously, other than like Saturday, most likely, but they're they immediately get to work so that they're not having to take from the people that they're witnessing to. Now, if the people want to give them stuff, like, um, the Philippians gave to Paul while he was in Thessalonica, according to Philippians four, but I believe it's four, but um, and, and Paul received it, but he wasn't coming there for that. And he did his absolute best to not have to take and to show them uh, what a true good citizen of heaven does. Just like Jesus was working, you know, like he's, he's out there laboring for people. We're going to do that as well. And I think that's one of the big blessings as well from... Um, a monetary standpoint of being bivocational or having a quote unquote real job and having the ministry on the side is that you're not as tempted by money. Because if the people who you're preaching to are the ones who write your checks and are helping you get out of seminary debt, there's a lot of temptation to tell those people what they want. And then that's pre- preaching a lot of times out of air. It's preaching out of mixture. It's preaching as a, out of a pretext for greed. All that stuff starts creeping in very easily. Yeah,
1: I think that's a temptation for a lot of people. I mean, that's obviously there's plenty of people that are paid by churches or whatever that don't hold back from what God is teaching. Is just are telling them to teach, but. It's just it can be a temptation, mm-hmm. and it and it can shape things and it can cause you to, um, yeah, to to not be fully honest with the message that God wants you to proclaim,
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, one of the um phrases that you see twice in verses eight and nine, and you also saw in verse two, is the gospel of God. He says three times in chapter two that he and Silas and Timothy were preaching to the people, the gospel of God. Now, that phrase is found at the very beginning of Mark's gospel. Mark, as we know, was a traveling companion of Paul. Now, tradition tells us that Mark got his gospel from Peter and I I believe that he did, but I also believe that they're preaching the same message everywhere. And so how does Mark define the gospel of God? It was the very beginning in Mark 1.14. Now, after John, that's John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, at that time, Jesus was not teaching about his uh, suffering, death, and resurrection. That came later in Mark but we still have Mark calling this the gospel of God. Now, Paul uses this phrase at the very beginning of Romans, the gospel of God. And then we get a little bit more of a definition of it. And this is in Romans chapter one. I don't know if uh, you wouldn't mind pulling it up. This is Romans chapter one, and we're gonna read uh, chapter one, verse one through six. So you're going to get lots of different aspects of the gospel of God.
1: Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ, to Jesus Christ. You said through six, right?
0: Uh, Sorry, through seven
1: to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints.
0: Awesome, right there, called to be saints. So you got a lot of aspects of the gospel of God here. He says- A lot of
1: lack of ending of sentences
0: there. Yeah, yeah, Paul-
1: (laughs) Paul loves a run-on.
0: He likes to ramble a bit. Yeah. Yeah, he's not concerned about grammar so much. (laughs) The genius that he is. But he talks about how- The gospel shows that the prophets declared beforehand that God's son would be born a descendant of David. So that is in the kingly line. So you're going to have the Messiah being a king, royal line of David. All right. So Jesus is born in the flesh. He's a real person, the son of God, the king of the Jews, and he is going to raise from the dead. He was declared the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead according to the spirit of holiness. So by the Holy Spirit. And he calls Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if we just pause there, if you think Romans 10 9, if you confess with your mouth that
1: Jesus is Lord,
0: and you believe in your heart that God
1: Raised him from the dead.
0: You will be saved. All right. Well, you've got that right there in Romans 1. You've got Paul declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. That's very plain Jane gospel, right? But there's more to it as well. Because you have this gospel of God in Mark saying the time is here, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay. So, Paul continued in verse five, we received grace and apostleship through the Holy Spirit to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. So part of the kingdom of God is about taking back over the world in a sense. God reclaiming all of the nations, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. Because God, according to Romans 11, has bound up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all, everybody. Now, what does that mean for these Gentiles? Do they just get to sit and watch the show? Do they just get to sit and watch God's, God and his family play together? It's, it's interesting because the Gentiles among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. You're called of him and you are beloved of God. You're God's beloved and you're called as saints. God's beloved, that's Israel. And Old Testament saints, that's Israel, his holy people. And so you see these Gentiles being brought into the family of God in a massive way as they were in a smaller way in the Old Testament with people like Naaman, the Syrian, people like Ruth, the Moabite. It shows people like Rahab, the Canaanite harlot in Jericho the gospel was it includes the egyptian horde multitude that also crossed the red sea with moses and the people god had a plan for all the nations to make this his world and eventually that does happen when jesus comes back and the gospel has been preached to all nations Then Jesus comes back eventually, and he says, now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And that's in Revelation 11. So verse 10, 10 through 12, home stretch. It says, you are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So he did moms, now he did father.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of reasons for this, but it kind of made me thinking, or it made me think of like people that followed Christ, especially in this time, in this culture, Experience potentially the loss of their families, um, and do all around the world now too. But probably less so in places like the U.S. or whatever. But you could potentially lose your family, and he's saying, "Like, we're here. We're going to be your family. We're going to be your mother, your father. we we care for you in that way. Not that we replace them, but we care for you in that with that same affection."
0: Yeah, and and you know you see the different similar but different roles right and that kids need both kinds of voices you know and i know some kids don't have a dad but that's part of like you're saying the church's job yeah to step in there and be a father to the fatherless you know there's single moms out there
1: and single dads
0: and single dads and single dads need women in the church to step up and be like a mom to their kids 'Cause that's let's those two different types of voices give more of the full um picture of what the heart of God is like. God is like a nursing mother, mm-hmm. but God is also like this exhorting, imploring dad. Yeah. I mean we need it's almost like really so- softer and a little harder, rougher, you know, but we need both of those. Kind of voices, and the church has to do a better job of stepping up and filling in gaps.
1: Yeah, I, I, I wrote down some words from there, but maybe I, I should probably be look at the actual verse. But um, the verse about the father, I just, I, the words I wrote down was like encouraging, comforting, and urging. So there is a certain like pushing forward, but it's also like building. Them Mm -hmm. up, and so you know, like reminding them what they are capable of, or you know the standards that they should hold themselves to. But it 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 had a little more tenderness to it than I was than I was expecting or would think maybe.
0: Yeah, that imploring is like charging people, Mm -hmm. you know. So you're going to see moms needing to be a little bit more, you know, firm at times, and you're going to see dads needing to be more gentle at times. Like Paul is being gentle among you. He's a dude. And so he's showing like both qualities.
1: You're saying like stereotypically speaking, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah of course. Yeah. Of course. Because our personalities, just because of genetics, lean more, you know, toward that that way. There's men, you know, and women. And we need to have softness and tenderness, but we kind of lean certain ways in a stereotypical manner. And that's good. That's fine because they both are aspects of who God is. God made us in his image, male and female. He made us both reflect the goodness and glory of God, and both are necessary in a, you know, in in the family of God.
1: So what do you think that might look like to be like a mother or a father to somebody who doesn't?
0: Yeah, well, you know, when I was very early on in uh, my ministry, time very early on at the very beginning first starting to maybe since God's call on my life I had my uh, first mentor Mike Satterfield that would just invite me to come to his office anytime I didn't have to call I didn't have to make an appointment it's just come on and I'd just show up and he'd be like hey man I'm going to take a trip to go speak at a church tomorrow you want to come and I, oh, okay and it just take me along on trips. He showed me how to read the Bible. He showed me how to pray. Like he was just, he was being, it, it was all, it's kind of like an older brother, but it was kind of like a dad as well. You know, he wasn't saying I'm your dad now. He just kind of took on that that role in many respects. And I approached it that way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that, that would be one way.
1: Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I was thinking of like when I was in nursing school in Philly and I didn't have any family, didn't have any friends really at first, Um, just just living in this city kind of by myself and found a church and I started going there and met a lady at an event and she seemed nice and then she invited me over to her house and it just sort of transformed into this thing where um, it became a... Almost every weekend, I was staying the night with them before we'd go to church on Sunday mornings and became like a part of the family and I was not sitting lonely and by, by myself in my apartment anymore on the weekends.
0: yeah and what you're what you are uh, relaying and what I was relaying it's part of what Paul said like we didn't just impart God's word to you. we imparted our very selves, our very lives, yeah to you made ourselves vulnerable to you. That's what they did. They were being like, your lady was being like a mom to you and my guy was being like a dad to me, You know, bringing us in, holding us close in a sense and spurring us on, challenging us at times. So one of the things that Paul would encourage, exhort and implore each one of the Thessalonians to do is to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, walk in a manner worthy of it. That has a very similar ring to Philippians 1, where Paul says to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves. And we talked about how Paul is using the word citizen as a verb, citizen yourself, be a citizen of heaven here, show people what that's like. And that word worthy, worthy of the gospel of God or worthily <laughs> is suitable. It's, it matches an actual value. So it would be like, if you're going to play basketball for, Duke, you got to play in a manner worthy of Duke. That means like you have to reflect the standards of this program. You're not going to be a slacker. You got to be a hard worker. You have to be willing to dive on the floor for loose balls. You have to be able to, and be all about the little things, the hard things, the difficult things, right? So if you're going to play in a manner worthy of Duke, then you can't just loaf. You can't be selfish. You have to be about the team. Similarly, if you're going to match the kingdom of God, if you're going to live in a manner worthy of God, first you need to know what the kingdom of God is like. Right. So you you need to know what the standard is.
1: And if you've never seen it lived, then you have no idea what that even looks like, so.
0: Yeah. Now we know that the Thessalonians did walk in a manner worthy of the gospel because Paul says, everywhere we go, remember chapter one, we hear about you guys. Right. We hear this amazing report that you are living out the kingdom of God. So they're doing a good job. But what about us? What is the standard? How do we know what the values of the kingdom of God look like?
1: I mean, you study, study Jesus first and foremost.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So why don't we close this with the Beatitudes? Steph, can you pull up Matthew chapter five? Now this is Jesus going around the Galilee, preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So we're gonna read Matthew five verses three through 12. This is how we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of God.
1: Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
2: Just when I catch my breath, a fire starts free. Soon as I lay my head, the sun comes up again, but in the valley of the shadow you were there And when my heart grows faint in faith I'll take your hand Got no more to give. But, oh, my Lord, it's like I've got no more to give. You are a shield all around. You answer when I cry aloud. I won't dwell in dread. My head let mercy abound my own flesh and blood, a covenant betray. How long must my heart have sorrow? I fled my home what's permanent remains My God makes me whole and you my future save.